All content on this channel is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as professional financial advice. Should you need such advice, please consult a licensed financial or tax advisor. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of information on this channel. Okay, so we are talking about a company called Five Below, which is not to be confused with Fiverr, but it is a completely different company. Um, and it's very different from what we've talked about in the past, which is mostly high growth tech stocks. Uh, this company, I think, is still a high growth stock, but it's like in the old world of uh, just retailing, like discount retailing. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. When you sent it to me, I thought it was Fiverr. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I've looked at that before. <laughs> but then I was like, what is five below? Uh, yeah. I never, to be honest, I'm not a big shopper. I had never heard of this company. I asked my wife, who's the source of all good information in my life, and she has. She's been to the stores. I was hoping to go to one before we recorded today. I was like looking up everyone around me. And the closest one is like 20 minutes. I just did not have a pocket. So I have to, full disclosure, I have not had the opportunity to go to one of these stores. I did poke around um, both some hashtags, which was a good idea to get some customer feedback. And I went to look at their inventory of items and what they sell. So I have a decent idea of, of what they do and how they play. But um, just for background, because this is how I looked into it, um, they are a, and they're in the specialty discount retail category. Uh, they mm. do target a younger demo. So it looks like most of the stuff they're selling are like, toys. Uh, they're looking at kids. Um, I think traditionally like teens and tweens and uh, kids, you know, five and, to yeah. 19 is kind of, the, kind of the yep. category. Yep. Yeah. So definitely and, my, and I, I'm got, in that demographic. Definitely. Well, like they, they mentally sell and emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly. They're right up right in my wheelhouse, yeah. uh, which is funny. I want to talk about that too. So like I'm poking around the product selection, I guess they segment into eight categories. So it's like tech, uh, create play candy, room style, party, new and now. Those are their yeah. categories. And like, that sounds like something out of like, you know, 17 magazines. But like, I, I get it. Um, <laughs> it's like the eight what, major food groups for a tweet that, that they're interested yeah, in. Pretty much. Right? Yeah. Uh, but what was interesting, what, what jumped out at me, again, at, at first glance, you know, this isn't, I'm not, this is not a valuation exercise or a, a company discussion that sounds that interesting at first glance, right? Um, but then, you know, I, I'm a dad, I've got two kids. I would love to have brought my kids to one of these stores and come back with all kinds of feedback. But um, I will say the first thing that jumped out to me looking at the categories and the selection of items and what they have, there, there's, it may be for kids, but it's easy to also play to the parents, right? Like all this yep. stuff has nostalgia. It's like Star Wars branded stuff. I'm like, oh, that's, you know, cool t-shirt I could buy for myself. And then you look right. and they do sell some items that are not kids um some things i saw some like yoga pants things that the mom or the dad would have uh mm -hmm. or would have interest in that that they're obviously catering to so i i do think i don't want to limit them to that category of like tween sales because i do think there's plenty of expansion opportunity in the product selection and the target demo but for now and for what their brand is that's who they're targeting Yep. Um, and it's also, I think, worth noting, there's the CEO, Joel Anderson, is the former head of Walmart's online business, which oh, I, gives I him a lot of that. operating chops. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so he used to run he used to run the digital, which is interesting for because he ran the online business. Right. Uh, and Five Below is not an ecom player. It's uh, not. So I found that interesting, but it does give him it does give him chops uh, from an operational perspective of working with a massive company, cutting operational costs and supply chain costs and managing distribution centers. Like he does have experience there. Yeah, he knows he knows how, what what it looks like at a much larger company. Yeah, I mean, for me, if you want to do it right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, for me, the way that I came across this company was because they actually, there's um, there's a, like a strip mall near me um, where, you know, there's a Starbucks and there's a Home Depot there. Um, so I, I come, I walk over there pretty frequently and uh, they used to have like this sad little office depot that, you know, like always had like 15 employees in there doing nothing. And the only time I ever went into that office depot was to like, get them to cut the binding off of a textbook that I wanted to scan for like this little tutoring business that I had. Uh, like literally, but like, like cutting that spine off of a textbook costs 73 cents. So like, that's the, and I do it like once or twice a year. So I'd give them like a dollar 50 of revenue, like every year, which, which is pretty sad. They ended up closing down. Um, and uh, uh, like not that long after like just sometime during COVID, I started noticing that there was like signs for a store called Five Below um, opening up. And I thought it was like a temperature related thing, like five degrees below zero or something mm -hmm. like that. And uh, like, you know, they were being, they were, were going to sell slushies or something like that. I, I don't know. I thought, I didn't understand it. And then when they finally opened, I, you know, I took the kids, um, I have a, a five-year-old and a two-year-old uh, to go visit. And I was impressed by the store. It's well lit. Uh, it's kind of like exciting to go to. And there's lots of like little random things that are there's being sold for like $5 or less. A few are being sold a little bit above like $7, $10, that kind of thing. Um, and all the things that they have are things that like it, it, you'd never know you'd want. Like you never knew you needed it until you saw it, that kind of thing. It's kind of like a little treasure hunt um, style place, like the way uh, TJ Maxx or Ross stores um, or even Trader Joe's always has something new in the store. Um, so it kind of makes you want to come back to try to discover what they have. And you get a little dopamine hit in your brain whenever you see something new or novel or interesting um, that you wanted. And, uh, you know, my kids, they're not like the demographic that, uh, five below would try to target, which is the tween market, but they had fun running around the store, looking at everything and, you know, touching all the toys. And there is certainly stuff for adults. So there's like, um, you know, like a star Wars related stuff and like, uh, like, I can't believe it, but they had like uh, quadcopters, like remote controlled quadcopters and they were selling hmm. for like 10 bucks. And, I, and I'm like, how is it even possible for you to get, have like the electronics in there? have got to cost close to like $10 already, unless I'm missing something about like the scale of manufacturing improvements where like you could sell a quadcopter like that for 10 bucks profitably, you know, but it's just, yeah. Like, I feel like I, you know, as a, just not even in the target demographic, I'm way older than a tween now. Um, the, like there's stuff in there that I actually would want to get. Now the, I, I did actually go to the store knowing that I was going to take the kids on like a little shopping adventure to like look at stuff. But 
I also didn't bring my wallet. So hmm. no matter what the kids wanted, I'd be like, sorry, guys, I have no money. <laughs> uh, but, it, did you forget your wallet on purpose? No, or no. Did you I, forget? <laughs> I, I, I forgot my wallet on purpose because I wanted to be like Odysseus, you know, when he was passing the, the sirens rock. Uh, he's just like, plug my ears and like tie me to the mask so I won't do anything. Uh, so I literally showed up like Aurelia and Teddy wanted to buy everything. And then I was like, sorry, we're, I got no money, kids. <laughs> um, so you I, know, that's actually, it's a great strategy because I, I, I'll tell you one of the things I love about this, there aren't that many stores anymore where you can take your kids to get stuff or go go bananas and they won't literally bankrupt you. I took yep. the kids to a candy store recently and like everything's $12. You want to buy a, oh this God. little box of candy. It's like, it's like $8.99. It's imported. It's this. And just costs in general going up. So like, I love the idea of giving my kids a five or a $10 bill and being like, go to town, get whatever yeah. you want. You yeah. know, uh, I, I tried to do that uh, on vacation in, in like some local candy store and like they couldn't buy anything. So I, I love the idea of physically going to a store, physically giving them a physical dollar bill and physically telling them to go grab whatever they want. That right. does not, is very nostalgic and doesn't exist anymore. So it, it's a good point. And so with like families who um, have either allowance systems or, you know, like um, compensation for chores type systems um, where, you know, you want to teach kids the value of like, quote unquote, a dollar. Um, this store is great because there's stuff that like kids that age would legitimately like be interested in wasting their money on, you know, <laughs> and then yeah. um, they get to experience if like earning money and like spending money and thinking about like how much you want to spend versus how much you want to save. So, um, so it's interesting. Like this is a, like, I really like, I enjoyed the store experience. And uh, what I liked about it is that even though it's targeted towards tweens, we, as we said, there's like broad appeal in the store. It's like well lit. Um, the cut, the, 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 um, the employees there are like super friendly and energetic. It's not like when I go to the 99 cent store or like the Dollar Tree, it's kind of like run down and a little bit sad. And I'm not having mm -hmm. fun in the store. And the employees there look like this is the last place that they want to be at, you know? And so right. like, it's, it's kind of a bummer. They're like, go to a 99 cent store or a dollar store. I just want to like get my stuff and then get out. Um, but here I would wander into this store on a regular basis, just because it's kind of like a fun experience, you know? I love that. And that, that's one of the things you can't get from reading docs or looking at hashtags, like the experience in the store. I, I agree from what I was able to gather anecdotally, that seems to be the case. It has an energy to it that a lot of these other stores don't have, especially discount stores. Uh, I think sad is the right, <laughs> right describing word. I just feel sad. Uh, and this does not seem to have that emotion. Uh, I think everybody's sentiment is it's fun and it's an experience. Uh, I almost want to go right now. Like I want to go <laughs> check it out. Uh, so, I definitely wouldn't say for like a dollar store or a, a Ross stores or whatever. Exactly. Although, you know, my wife loves going to Ross stores and things like that, but it's because they have a regular rotation of items. And then they're also like reasonably priced and fairly cheap. So it's kind of like a treasure hunt experience. And that's what mm. this also provides. It's a treasure hunt experience. Like you'll never break the bank and you'll also find something interesting. And they turn over their inventory, their, their SK, SKUs um, two or three times a year. So um, if you visit like once every quarter, you'll always find uh, completely new things that you've never seen before. 
Um, one, when I was doing research on this, the other thing I did was I started looking on Twitter to see what people were saying, not like investor people, but like regular people were saying on uh, about five below. And then I discovered like the hashtag five below finds. These are just regular people who like went to five below and then they found stuff that they're like interested in, like, and they're interested in it so much. They're like so proud of their find that they're willing to like take a picture of it and like post it to social media, which I find interesting. Like I've never like gone to a raw store, bought a t-shirt and then posted it on social media. That's weird. Right. Um, right. And then uh, like I discovered through this research process, something called a squish, ma- uh, squish mallow. I never heard it, of it before, but I, I, I think like people were like, like I saw reports of people like lining up at, in front of these sto- these five below stores because they it turns out that these five below stores got restocked with like a squishmallow and of course I'm like <laughs> I have no idea what the hell a squishmallow is I gotta now go like on a weird tangent and it's investigate it turns out squishmallows are like the modern day version of Beanie Babies they are like plushy toys there's like a thousand <laughs> different kinds of them. And each one has a unique name and a unique story behind it. And some of the squishmallows are like classified as common. So, you know, um, you can have that. And there's like, there's some that are rare and there's some that are called ultra rare. And there's others that are like special edition. And so, uh, yeah. And I think you like buy it in boxes or something like that, where you don't know what's inside the box. Um, And so, uh, you know, people go crazy trying to collect. They're squishmallows. Yeah. So <laughs> well, there's a there's a space cute cake alien limited edition on sale on eBay right now for $348.95. So if you want to get ahead of that, Gil, is yeah, not get that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I could buy a squishmallow like that for five bucks at five below and then flip it to someone on eBay for 300 I don't even know why we're trying to invest in stocks. We should be investing yeah, yeah. in squishmallows. <laughs> yeah. These- this, the return on Squishmallow is pretty good, by the way. The sloth, the 16-inch sloth sequin belly Kelly toy is uh-huh. a rare find for $34. That's pretty good. That's pretty it's good. A cute looking, it's a pretty cute-looking Squishmallow. Okay, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. Be- Beanie Babies is the right one. Or Trolls, you remember those? Yeah. How, it depends how old you are. <laughs> or like Pet Rocks. But basically, the yeah. way I think about Squishmallows is it's like, it's, it's like NFTs, but not digital. Like, they're literally plush toy nfts you mean you, you mean things yeah you actual things no like this is weird like we're actually buying real things not like digital jpegs <laughs> non-fungible so tokens what a waste. it's so stupid to what buy a something of, what real. a waste of matter how am i gonna store it in my metamask wallet <laughs> yeah why are you wasting matter you don't you don't need you don't need to use these atoms for that you can use it for something else yeah, these are stupid people buying real things <laughs> instead of buying JPEGs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, you know so, what? Yeah, so we're going to say. Go, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to start talking about like how many um, stores there were, but where were you going to head off in there? Yeah, one more thing before you get into the, the numbers. Um, one thing is, I also noticed the stores are really small and they're all like in existing shopping centers. It's not like its mm-hmm. own independent store. Yes. which keeps their costs down. Um, and if you look at the business, I remember trying to value, this is years ago with you, trying to value Walmart. 
How do you look at Walmart's business uh, and looking at their store business? You, you, you look at a few things for any kind of chain, retail chain, right? One is, you know, what's your, what's your, um, what's your EBITDA on each store, right? Yeah. How much money can you make on each store and how quickly can you open new stores without affecting your margins? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's the model to look at here. And you're about to get into that with the number of stores, but before you do, the one thing I noticed really quickly about this company that again, I don't, that I knew nothing about is they are growing really quickly. They're opening a lot of new stores very quickly. Yeah. They are really, really, really um, uh, operationally careful. They don't waste money on overhead space staff. I mean, I was reading that they deflate their, their inflatables before they ship and store. So like just right. to keep the cost <laughs> down, the weight of the air inside the basketball. It's like, yeah, they're yeah. really, really like that reminds me of Walmart. Uh, yeah. And it reminds yeah. me of, you know, really fighting down every margin, every cost as much as possible to make it profitable. And if you right. look at the cost per store, it costs $300,000 for them to open a store. It returns 450000 in earnings in the first year. It, it basically takes them seven months to turn a store profitable. And then it's just gravy training. Yeah. And they're opening stores incredibly. So, you know, it, it's, it's kind of this balance of how many stores can you open at what speed without starting to hurt your unit economics, right? At, yeah. at each store level. Um, and that's, that's the math. That's the heading I had going into trying to value this business, treating it like Walmart um, at a retail level, like forgetting the e-commerce piece of it and just looking at the stores uh, and treating it like a chain. Those are the things I'm looking at. Unit economics on a per store basis and how quickly they can expand and what's the saturation point. Um, yeah. And I don't know if you want to get into now the number of stores or, or whatever, you you can you can take it over. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. I mean, and then you know, like uh, on the Walmart point, yeah, we had looked at Walmart years ago and then I, I actually model this in my mind mentally as like a Walmart style, the way I would look at Walmart growth or Starbucks growth because I, I also had invested in Starbucks um, a while back. Um, and then like for the Walmart one, I really liked the company years ago. And then I had the, the, the most amount of thing, the, the, the thing that I won about that is a case of beer because of the uh, the bet we met with the, uh, the I made with a coworker uh, on whether or not um, Walmart would have higher returns than uh, Archer Daniels Midland. So thanks, thanks again, Chris, for that case of beer. I hope, he's, uh, I hope he's listening. Yeah, I know. I hope he's <laughs> left, left that little Easter egg for him. But uh, and then <laughs> and then um, the uh, Starbucks one. I, I invested in Starbucks right in the middle of the um, the the two thousand eight financial crisis when it was trading at like eight, nine, ten dollars per share. Um, and I, I remember thinking, okay, how much? Like, if I were to buy all of Starbucks right now at this point in time, in the middle of the great financial crisis. Uh, like the market cap, how much is it per store? And it was something ridiculous, like $800,000 per store when I knew they were making like close to two mil per store at that time. Uh, I was like, yeah, but I'm going to buy it. Now, I mean, I, 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 have, I should have probably held that, uh, that stock, but I ended up selling it for other things later on. Uh, but if I had held it till now, it would have been a pretty good return. And the dividends on Starbucks um, would have been a significant portion of my purchase price. Actually, like so, it would have been a good idea for me to just kept holding it. But now I'm looking at this, and you know, for, uh, you know, I just was curious about the company because you know my, my kids and I had visited it, and then I started reading the um, the financials, including the investor presentation, and then I my eyes popped at exactly the thing 
that you were talking about, which is uh, the unit economics around like, what does it cost them to build a new store? And what is the payback period for that store? The crazy thing is it costs them somewhere between $300,000 to $400,000 to open a new store. And they are funding the, oper- the, the opening of new stores from cash on their balance sheet. They're not borrowing money. They're just funding it with cash they generate from their operations. This is a money printing machine. And then when they open a new store, that new store gets to like ramps up really quickly to like in the first year to 90% of the, uh, the normal carrying capacity of the store. Right. And then they end up returning somewhere around 450 to $500,000 in cash flow. So look, like if you're going to spend 300 to $400,000 to install a new store, and in one year you make 450 to $500,000 from that, like you're going to want to open as many stores as possible. Like, and that's what we're doing. They're getting pre-tax returns of over 100% on every new store that they build out. And their payback period is ridiculously fast. It's less than a year, maybe around seven, eight months, like you said. Now, if I compare it against a more mature player in a similar industry, so like Dollar Tree, right? Uh, Their payback period for new stores is pretty good. It's a little bit less than two years. Like, that's what I consider very good in this industry. And this store, like Five Below, is doing it not in two years, but like in less than one year. So I find that like absolutely nuts. Um, Yeah, like it's really, really good. This is probably like best in class return on investment of like many retailers. Like, I don't even think Starbucks gets this kind of ROI anymore on new stores. Maybe they did like back in the day during their high growth phase, you know, but this is like fantastic. Like you're literally just printing money every time you open a new store. It's crazy. Right. But that's the thing. So then you take that to its conclusion and I don't want to jump too far ahead um, into like valuation without looking at competition and some of the risks of the business, but take, take your number, right? Like they project, I don't know, I, I was trying to do it on net sales, but let's let's work backwards on, on just cash, right? It's generating, you know, $500,000 a store mm-hmm. um, a year on cash and, and uh, on per store, right? Of cash per store. Let's say, you know, they, they and they, they, what, what's interesting there, they have 1200 stores, give or take, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're capping themselves. They're kind of like, we can get to a point um, they set the number at 2,500 operating stores for whatever yeah. reason without yeah. a dilute, without a dilutive effect on the business. Right. And I think if they do a good job with like density, densification, if they're able to open more stores in a certain in certain locations to maximize their distribution center placement uh, and marketing efforts, plus mm-hmm. uh, they get some supply chain efficiency from that, right. Um, right. you could even drive that number up. So let's just say 500k store of cash flow every time they open a store and mm-hmm. they get up to 2,500 operating stores, right? That That's yeah. like a, like one and a quarter, uh, a billion per year in cash flow in, in EBITDA, right? You said 1.25 billion? Okay, yeah. I think so. That, that's yeah. what it comes out to, right? 500K yeah, yeah. per store times 2,500, it's one, one and a quarter. So, you know, that, that's that's interesting, right? So now how do you value a business? Let's say they execute on their plan, right? And they get yeah. to their 2,500 stores. 
And let's, let's give them all of the, you know, I'm going to, the opposite of straw man, I'm going to, you know, uh, uh, whatever, I'm going to give them the best possible case scenario, they full expansion, flawless expansion, 2,500 stores, there's no recession, or even better, they're 100% recession proof. There's no dilutive effect of having more stores, they don't reach saturation point, meaning there's no drop in demand. And I think they're showing that, you know, you, if you look closely, by the way, at the net sales, um, their, their cash flow it drops a little bit uh, in the last quarter, 2.2 million to 2 million. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's indicative of anything versus like, you know, you're, you're navigating a very rocky COVID period, but um, yeah. just something to keep an eye on. Uh, if they do start to approach some kind of saturation point and you see a drop in demand or a drop in net sales, uh, that's a huge red flag, but they haven't seen it. So let's just pretend that they're not going to see it. They get to 2,500 without any drop in demand. They keep their margins. They get a bit of efficiency improvement with the distribution centers, the supply chain efficiency, and they execute this plan fully uh, at a faster pace. So right mm-hmm. now, I think they average, they added, I read the Q1 report, they added 68 stores in Q1, right? Yeah. So let's just, or yeah, 68 stores in a quarter. Let's say they can bump that up to 100 stores in a quarter, okay? Averaging between now and the end of 2024. So giving mm-hmm. them about two and a half, two and a half years to execute that plan, that gets them to that one and a quarter billion EBITDA uh, from 2,500 stores by the end of 2024, right? Yeah. So, so how do you value that? If you look at that, I mean, there's a million uh, ways to do that. You could do EV well, okay. to EBITDA. So, you could do well. A, a couple, I guess, a couple of ways of thinking about it is number one. You know, I think they're sandbagging it a little bit, as in. You know, when they IPO'd like maybe, I don't know, six years ago, something like that, um, their their IPO document said that, oh, we have 200 stores right now. That's when they IPO'd at 200 stores. And they said, we've envisioned having 2,000 stores in the U.S. And then um, a, few, a few years later, they updated their documents and said, we think maximum we can hold 2,500 stores in the U.S. Now, so they just yeah. lifted it by 500. Now, here's the thing. Dollar Tree, how many stores do they have? 8,000 stores. And then Dollar General, 17,000 stores. And you think this place, the, the, these guys are thinking max 2,500 stores in the US when Dollar Tree has 8,000 and Dollar General has 17,000? Um, I think they're sandbagging this. And I think they actually have the potential to have way more stores than their max capacity is, um, that they believe their, that they state their max capacity is right now. Also, here's the other crazy thing. I'm just talking about the U.S. How about Canada? You can build stores in Canada. They haven't even begun talking about like international expansion. Yeah. I don't know whether or not this model would work in a European com- uh, country or um, if it works like in like China or some shit like that. But I just, I mean, I feel like Canadians would like the same thing as us. So I think it would work in Canada too. Um, but anyway... The uh, uh, I, I like your numbers. I think it makes sense. Like if we're thinking about just okay, it, it hitting twenty five hundred stores, um, it's making roughly half a mil in EBITDA per store. Um, like that works out to one and a quarter billion, and um, you know you could slap some sort of multiple on it for a high growth store because I feel like at twenty five hundred stores, that's like. You, you can slap a low multiple on it if you feel like 2,500 stores is the end game. Like if that's going to be it and they're going to reach steady state. But I actually feel like you can slap a high multiple on it even at that quote unquote future 2,500 store state 
um, because I think that the market is size, the, the full market is actually much larger than the 2,500 cap, the store cap that they mentioned. So if you say, if you think like for a retailer, I don't know, a 10 PE is worth it for like a low growth company. And like, I don't know, I'm just saying, just pulling numbers out of my ass, like a 30 PE is fine to pay for a retailer that has a significantly larger, um, you know, total addressable market and, you know, still potential to grow many more stores than 2,500 stores, right? Um, Then, you know, like you can slap a 30 PE on it. And then if you run that number there, I think 2,500 stores producing each 500,000 in, um, you know, operating income uh, and then multiply by 30, let's say. That gives you, I think, a market cap of roughly 37 billion. Let's call it 35 billion, okay? Just because I'm just going to round down. And, you know, I think what they have right now is roughly an $11 billion market cap at a share price of $200 per share because it hit $200 today. Um, so you're thinking about something that potentially um, could go from $11 billion market cap to three. $35 billion market cap, which is a little over a triple. And then now the question is going to be, how long is it going to take it take them to, to get there? Your numbers- That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I love this. On, yeah, you're, you're, you're basically reading through my sheet without reading my sheet. It's great. Keep going. <laughs> I love this. I don't have to say anything. <laughs> you're, you're, you mean, it, on one hand, right? Like if you're thinking about um, what they've done so far, um, they have experienced a historical store growth CAGR of 20% over the last 10 years. So if you extrapolate that from like a thousand stores, a thousand stores multiplied by one, uh, a 20% CAGR, let's say in five years worth of growth, gives them around 2,500 stores. I'm actually exaggerating a little bit. The real number on my calculator is 2,488.32. Okay. But but let's say that's roughly around 2,500 stores at roughly around 20% CAGR with the starting base of 1,000 stores right now, right? Um, is that a crazy number for them to hit? No, because the 20% that I'm quoting from is literally what they've experienced since the, in terms of their store count growth from the beginning. Now, with the law of large numbers, 20% near the terminal end of a time period is actually different from like a 20% at the beginning of the time period. So you know, maybe it's possible that I'm being aggressive on this, like maybe the growth will slow down and they can't keep it up at 20% um, store growth, maybe it's something like 15% store growth. I don't know. We'll see. <clears throat> and then, um, but let's just keep it at 20% um, store growth for five years. Um, that means then that like, if they can hit 2,500 stores in five years at that 20% CAGR and you know, they're making um, like that 1.25 billion at that point with a 30 multiple. So they'll be worth 35 billion um, in five years. That would give you a CAGR, um, a potential CAGR of 26% on your investment if you bought the, the stock today at $200. I mean, right. and obviously, all those assumptions would have to hold true. So you're taking the risk that they don't. Right. Um, and I and also... That- the- the timeline there, you can goose that CAGR number if, if, you, if they can accelerate opening more stores effectively mm-hmm. with all the best case scenario I just gave you. Yeah. That 30x multiple, this is where our sheets differ a little bit. 
it does, it gets them to 36 billion or give or take. Um, mm. And again, that's almost a triple. But if you do it in three years instead of five years, it's a 46 CAGR. Um, that, yes, that which is aggressive. Pretty compelling. <laughs> which is aggressive. Yeah. yeah, it's compelling, but it's, no, it's I'm also just saying, really aggressive. It, yeah. it, but I'm also <laughs> not building in here. Here's why it's not that aggressive. Um, I'm not building in any international expansion. I'm not building in any uh, additional uh, inventory expansion. I'm not talking about their new stuff. Like they're doing this um, 10 or less, which is like basically five below. And it has a not five below section yeah. called 10 or less, which <laughs> yes. is basically $10 or less. And yeah. change the name of the store. Um, yeah. But they, they can expand <laughs> or their, or <laughs> they can, <laughs> or 10 or less. Yeah. Um, they can expand their offerings. Um, yeah. And and again, I, I, I hinted it at the beginning, they can sell into other demographics too. Uh, and yeah. they can sell other stuff. They're not locked into $5 point inflation pressure. So they right. do have some risk mitigating capabilities. I'm not baking any of this in there. I'm just saying they execute perfectly on the plan they have and they yeah. do it just a little bit faster. And I yeah, think you're right. Be I think they're baking yeah. in, I think they're baking in all kinds of, of, of uh, sandbagging themselves um, in their reports so that they can, you know, exceed expectations. I think yeah. they can realistically do a hundred stores a quarter. Uh, if they did 68, you know, now in Q2 without any of these efficiencies, it's not that crazy to get them up to 75, 85, hundred, like, and again, 2,500 stores is, is not a saturation point. Uh, I right. don't think so. I don't think it's even close to one. So let's yeah. just say they do execute a little bit more quickly. And again, their, their margins are only going to get better. I'm not improving the EBITDA per store. It's 450 or 500. I could say it's 600, 700, right? Like, yeah. um, but let, let's just keep all those numbers. I think you're really looking at a much higher CAGR than that if you want to be slightly generous. Yeah. Uh, and that does not include... Yeah. Any of this stuff you could bake into a quickly growing company. If this was Dollar General, um, I don't think they have that kind of um, growth potential. You're not catching them early enough in the story, where you know they're they're under you know 1,500 stores. You're you're yeah. comparing them to companies that we know we know the names. Like I know uh, you know uh, whatever Dollar General. Well, they've got 17,000. You know, they've got a bajillion SKUs. They're everywhere. I've seen the name a million times. I had never heard of Five. There's so much room for growth here. You don't have to go crazy with the story. You can do some very simple projections and just do it on a slightly quicker timeline to execute a vision they've already mapped out and sandbagged. And it gives them a very, very aggressive CAGR return. If you wanted to get into it, basically $200 current share price, uh, loosely projecting it hit around $600 by the end of 2024, which is, yeah, which is exciting, I think. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, or I'm thinking about like by the end of 2025, it'll be like 600-ish. And then that'll give you roughly a 27% um, CAGR or 26% CAGR. And then, you know, like a CAGR with a forward, like a forward looking CAGR like that, obviously I'm, I'm not going to get it right. Like we're neither of us are going to get it right. And, um, but you could view it as kind of like a, um, a normal distribution where you're hoping that by being not overly crazy or not overly conservative, but just like a middle-ish conservative, that whatever CAGR number you're getting is like somewhere close to the middle of that normal distribution for projected returns, right? And then um, yeah. like obviously you'd love it to actually achieve distribution, CAGR distributions on the right side of that normal curve. Um, and you would obviously want to avoid um, like outcomes on the left side of that distribution curve, right? Um, and, and, you know, actually like some, some results on the left side of that, I'd be okay with like, 
like if if I'm imagining the normal curve and we happen to actually like get a lot of negative, I mean not negative, but like less less good than expected um, returns, like on the left side of that curve where I was projecting the middle of the curve was 26%, but actually it was on the left side, like I got 15%. It's not, it's not a terrible outcome. Like if it's 12% or 10%, it's like I'm matching probably what the S&P is going to do, or maybe I'm doing a little better than the S&P. I don't know. But like, that's like, there's some acceptable, like par results on the left side of that curve. But if the fat middle of that normal curve of distributions is around like 26%, that kind of gives you an expectation of like the, uh, the skew to the possible outcomes. With, of course, you be saying like, like it is possible for them to um, accelerate and do things really well and then be on the right side of the curve and give you an upside surprise, which I will take, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I just need to know what like the middle fat part of that curve would be like. And that's where I'm, I'm thinking, that's where the rough numbers are heading towards for me. The other thing that's interesting about them is that um, like their, their strategy allows for two options. One is the most attractive one, which is like spending money on new stores where the ROI is very, very good payback periods, like less than a year. Um, the second possible part of their strategy, which um, is still pretty good, but not as good as the first um, option, is to remodel older stores. And the economics for remodeling an older store, they said it was like, it cost them half of what a new store would cost to remodel an old store. So if a new store costs 300,000, an old store would cost about 150,000 to remodel. And um, if you look at the historical data on like remodeled um, older stores, what you usually see on average is that their sales will lift about a hundred, let's say $120,000 in the first year after a remodel. Um, And they have something like 36% gross margins. Um, And this is incremental gross margins. So it's like, I'm looking at his 36% as like the whole company, but um, incremental gross margin would have to be higher because it doesn't include any of like the fixed cost of like the cost of goods sold or whatever. Um, So, so basically that, like when you work out the numbers, like stripping out the fixed costs and looking at the incremental margins from the sp- this spend to remodel, you're probably going to get something close to like $50,000 um, in- increase in your earnings. Um, and if you're spending $150,000 to remodel the store and you lift your earnings by $50,000, you're basically getting a 33% re- return on your remodel. Another way of saying it is you're getting roughly a three-year payback period for your remodels. And that's not as good, obviously, as opening a new store, which is why, from a corporate perspective, they're probably spending as much money as they can, like building out new stores, right, um, which have a high return. But like the thing, thing about building out a new store is that ninety percent of like the steady state revenue from a store is achieved in the first year. So what the, that means is that it's great the first year, but in the second year, like you're trying to squeeze out that last ten percent, which means that like a store that's two years old has a cap on how much sales it can reliably like generate. It's not like an ever growing stream of income from old stores, right? Like it reaches its carrying capacity in that area. uh, And then just kind of like coasts along. Um, So really for, for them, they're going to end up reaching some sort of steady state in terms of like what geographical regions in North America, they can kind of saturate. 
And then afterwards, they'll have to like revert back to some sort of like longer payback period of like three years um, if they try to like remodel their stores and stuff. The um, So that's kind of like the model that I have in my head. And like a three-year payback is still okay. But if you notice, it's not as good as a dollar general um, payback period at maturity, which is like somewhere around two years. So they're like high growth, high return on investment phase. But in maturity, they're going to have to do certain things to make them um, on par or better than Dollar General. They just haven't gotten to it yet, if that makes any sense. And it's probably not a priority at this point because they're spending all their energy and growing. And I'm okay with that, but it's just something to watch out for. Um, one of the other things that I really like about their strategy is that like the thing that they, they actually remind me a little bit of IKEA. So like what IKEA does is they take a product that's popular and then they reinvest money into it every single year to make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Right. Like they, like they're like, they're like bookshelves or whatever. If you could, you see it the first year selling at $25 a bookshelf. And then the next year it's the same damn bookshelf, but it's like $23. And then the next year they got it down to like $19. Like they're always trying to squeeze costs and provide value for um, for people. Like IKEA stuff is known for being like okay quality and just super cheap furniture. Um, and what these guys are doing is they're working with their vendors to always create better quality products for cheap. Like first, like 60% of their vendors that sell SKUs, uh, SKUs through five, below, five and below, they're like US based, not like, you would expect normally that like, oh, they're importing a lot of this stuff for manufacturers in China. Um, but actually a surprisingly high percentage are US-based manufacturers. And part of that is just being agile enough in terms of supply chain and being able to work with vendors um, so that they could better communicate like changes and um, volume changes and like product design um, and just work closely with vendors. And um, like an example for that they give is that when they IPO'd, one of the products that they sold through their stores that was a big hit was these like remote controlled racing cars for $5. And you're like, how are they even selling remote controlled racing cars for $5? I would expect like a 20, 25, maybe even $30 price point for a remote controlled car. But these guys are selling it for five. And then two years later, they kept working with that vendor. And then now they ended up offering an infrared helicopter for that price point. And then two years later, they made it into like a branded helicopter. And then in 2019, it was a micro remote controlled quadcopter. Okay, same vendor. All from the same supplier. Yeah. yeah, yeah, same vendor. And then the year after in 2020, it's a Wi-Fi drone with camera for $10. So the price finally went up. But I feel like a Wi-Fi drone with a camera for $10 is a mind-blowing amount of value. How are you selling this? for $10, like what is going on here? But they just keep working with the vendors and just trying to like do it as cheap as possible and as crazy as possible. And they're all always like upgrading their offerings with newer and newer stuff for like a crazy price. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I, I do think that they have like a very good, um, I think culture where they've, it reminds me of a lot of different very, very good retailers like a Starbucks or a, uh, 
a Walmart um, or or a, or an, even an IKEA, um, and their unit economics for I mean the, the economics for opening new stores is very good. The the CAGR like the middle return of the distribution for me is like also uh, really good. And um, I think the other thing I wanted to comment in there was that they also have like this um, I think very uh, inventive culture. Um, it, like if you look at what future uh, uh, upcoming developments are, are for them, um, one of the things that you mentioned was like, I think like five above, or maybe I think it was like 10 below. I can't remember that where they're like trying to offer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, their branding. yeah. Like, like offer, offer stuff at a higher price point um, than $5, um, but still good value. And then um, the other thing that they have is they huh, invested like $12 million into a series A startup where I forget the name of that startup, but basically that startup was offering locally hosted e-games tournaments for people. Mm. And their plan was that the startup was going to end up building these e-game tournament um, places with like almost professional equipment right next to or attached to uh, the five below store. And it's not like, I don't think it's mysterious why they're doing this. It's like literally their target market, right? Like these e-gamer tweens who want to like compete with each other in video game tournaments um, but not do it from home, do it in like this like outdoor place that like is um, specially geared for that type of stuff where it's exciting to hang out with others. And then afterwards, maybe buy some stuff from from five below. Like it kind of makes sense. And yeah, it's, um, it's funny. The, the company, by the way, uh, is called um, Nerd Street Gamers. It's also local Philly. Five Below is a Philly company. So. Yeah, Ner Nerd Street Gamers. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I can't believe you forgot the name. <laughs> Maybe that's why I forgot it. Um, Maybe. So, so you, you like, I, I mean, what it does is it like kind of ju just con continues developing the idea that in, in an age where retailing is either utilitarian or an experience, um, there is no way really for retailers who are not utilitarian to survive unless they focus on the experience. Like if you want to be a utilitarian retailer, you got to be like a Walmart or you got to be like Amazon. Cheap stuff delivered really quickly, massive selection. And it's hard to do that. It's just really hard to do that. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a retailer and survive, you can't be utilitarian. You have to be an experience. You have to be like, I don't know, Whole Foods is a, is a vibe. Or like, Trader Joe's even is a vibe, you know, or like uh, TJ Maxx and Ross. They're kind of like places I'd never really want to go to. But I'm going to tell you, like middle-aged women love that shit. It is <laughs> like a treasure hunt every time. Cheap stuff you could buy like and random things. And it's just like changing all the time. It's like a dopamine hit every single time you go into a Ross store. Same thing with this. This is like a dopamine hit tailored for t tweets and now they're going to pair it with like i don't know uh like e-gaming next door 
Um, and this place is probably going to be, they're probably going to like sell um, $10 LED blue light uh, gaming headsets so that the tweens can buy their stuff to take it home, that kind of stuff. Like it all just kind of like goes together as the idea of we need to find retail um, experiences that draw people to come again and again. Otherwise, you ain't going to survive in the age of Walmart and Amazon. Like you can't. And that's, they're doing a good job of it. People go back. Like the average person spends like $15 a visit and visits like 10 times a year. So that's roughly once a month, once every two months, that kind of thing. Um, and you don't visit a store like 10, 10 times a year unless it's doing something for you, you know, like, uh, yeah, like, so that they yeah. must be good at it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think just when you look at compared comparing them to others, um, two things pop out at me with the, the Nerd Street investment too is what do they want to be and what don't they want to be? They're not trying to be an Amazon or a Walmart or a Costco or, you know, that, that, I feel like that's a different category because yeah. when you're working with super, you know, high yield, low margin products, right? You have $5 knickknacks, uh, that doesn't work so well in e-commerce. Um, you've built out a huge ordering infrastructure. You've got to mitigate the cost of delivery on something that weighs nothing and costs nothing. Uh, when you consider those kinds of factors, I'm not concerned with a big box retailer uh, looking at Five Below and, and thinking they're a competitor. Uh, they actually <laughs> specialize in the one area that those big guys don't service. Yeah. So that's that's one piece is just the product skews. And then the experience, like shopping on Amazon is not a vibe. <laughs> shopping <laughs> on Walmart.com or yeah. there's, there's, I want to get in, there. I want to get out. And I need my stuff right. and it needs to be cheap I, enough. Yeah. During, during the heyday of uh, the, the GME run up, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to actually look at the company, not the sentiment. Mm. And like, what are they trying to do? Because that, that business is obviously dying. It's why it was so heavily shorted. But mm. if you read into all the CEO statements and forward looking and what's the business going to be, I think the, the play was to make them more experiential opening gaming centers and interactive, making it much more of an experience to go to the store because otherwise they can't compete. Right. Um, and I think right. if Five Below starts creeping into that world of, you know, why uh, uh, why he, like, he likes GMEs, that there's a potential future of an experiential shopping experience in gaming and e-gaming and e-sports, then you right. should like Five Below for the same reason. So yeah. there's, a, there's a nice addressable market overlap there that again, I, we're not baking into this valuation at all. So I, I think there is opportunity to do stuff with that target market that um, you know you can't you can't just you can't just take as an Amazon or a Walmart or any of these other big box retailers. It's a different category. It doesn't right. concern me from a competition standpoint. Right. Yeah. This um, it's a you know five below is like a really interesting thing because I, you know I think about it and I think it basically just focuses on selling shit that nobody needs. Like it is a wonderland <laughs> of things that no one needs. And yet it's managed to grow its way into a, like an $11 billion company. And there's just something to be said. I just want to take a moment of like to pay respects to like the society the, the, that we live in where this yes, is a thing. The, Honor yeah. the consumer capitalist culture we've created here, where yeah. you can build an $11 billion business with a yeah. business model selling things that nobody actually needs. Yeah, yeah it's, it's literally a wonderland of shit that nobody <laughs> needs. Mm -hmm. 
but I go in there and I actually want to dispense stuff. So that's like the miracle of things. Like, you know. Um, all right. Anyway, so let's get to the the end of this thing. Uh, let's talk about whether or not um, we're you know we're personally going to buy this or not buy this, and for whatever reason. So you want to go first, or you, you or should I go first? I, I want to mention one more thing, and then I want you to go first because okay. <laughs> you know my num by, by crunching numbers, I, I came up with some different things. So one is. Uh, despite everything I just said, um, they did buy last year or a year and a half ago, they bought a company, Holler, their e-commerce and fulfillment. Did you see that at all? Uh, no, I mean, I know they have e-commerce, but it's not, it's not growing very quickly. So, right. And that, that to me, again, and I said at the very beginning, this is a business run by a guy with experience in online and e-com. What do they want to be? I think that's the biggest question is, you know, the, the simple story is where we started. It's a balance between aggressive store expansion and general consumer strength, right? You're trying to balance that in a way where you can grow as quickly as possible without eroding your customer base or your profit margin. That's an easy story to talk about. And I think we did the math on that. The bigger issue for me is what's the upside? If you're going to pay a heavy multiple, um, let's say you don't assume they're going to hit all these marks and they're not going to do it as quickly as possible. If you're going to pay a heavy multiple, um, you kind of need to know what the end game looks like and how much of a, how much of a market they, they plan to capture. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I wonder where, where you see that ending, um, you know, more than, more than I can prescribe. So I, I think that that's got to factor into your, uh, ultimate valuation of the business and what price you put on it and what multiple you're willing to pay for it. Regardless of the the simple vision they can execute, where do they where do they land? Uh, I think it's going to be a little different. Uh, yeah. you'll probably have a different perspective than I do. Um, okay, so I'm um, just thinking about it, and the you know when I do the simple exercise of like like at eleven billion dollar market cap with a thousand stores, like how much am I paying per store? And the answer is eleven million dollars. That's what it is per store. Now, that's obviously assuming that there's going to remain a static number of stores, like a thousand. But like, like if we pause time right now, and I just said, there's no growth, like how much am I paying per store? It's 11 million. Now, like if we're thinking that each store generates like uh, 450,000 in cash flow, and then I'm paying 11 million a store, that works out to something like four and a half percent yield. Let's call it that, you know? So... If it were to just stop growing, like like just completely pause growing, I'm buying something that looks like a bond that yields four and a half percent return on an annual basis, right? And um, normally I'd spit at that. I'd be like, I don't want to buy something that yields four and a half percent. I'm in the stock market. I I expect higher yields because I'm taking higher risk. <laughs> like. Take me to your manager. I need to speak to them about this yield. You know, <laughs> right. like because if you're taking higher risk, you expect higher yields than this. You know, uh, and but like the trick is that you know four and a half percent is assuming that it stops growing, and it's not stopping growing. It's actually growing, and you know if you assume a linear growth of you know fixed number of stores every year, where basically they're taking cash flow that piled up from pre-existing stores, reinvesting it at like a payback period of less than a year, like, or uh, quoted the other way, at investing it at rates of return in excess of 100% per year. 
you can see that like that four and a half percent initial yield actually like grows over time and the growth is dependent on their reinvestment rate and the rates of return on every store right so it's kind of it's not set in stone but historically it's been very good and so you could expect that like that four four percent could quickly grow to like an eight percent return something like that maybe even a 10 percent return um if you're purchasing every store right now at 11 million and you know that kind of like that return starts to grow over time because they take the cash flow and build out new stores. Those new stores produce more cash flow, so they build new stores. <laughs> and then they, mm-hmm. those stores return new cash flow until blah, 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 okay? So, uh, and the biggest risk is that, like, the whole thing fails in the sense that they can't find new places and, or uh, they, they can't find new places to expand to. Or, you know, even if they expand to new places, they don't get the same kind of, like, EBITDA traction on a per store basis in those new places. Like, I don't know, right. like, like they're now expanding in like Beverly Hills and like the people there are like, I don't need $5 junk. Please go away. <laughs> right. So that right. store is having like negative return. But, you know, I, I have faith in my fellow Americans that they do want uh, junk. Like we love <laughs> like, I'm like cheap, cheap junk. Like we love cheap junk. Like $5 junk is a good price point for like quality junk. Um, so I, I feel confident that actually like that four and a half percent yield will grow at a particular rate, maybe like 20% CAGR, maybe even 40% CAGR because revenue growth is not the same thing as like net income growth, right? If they get like leverage the um, income per share or like earnings per share could grow at a higher rate actually than what your revenue grows at because of um, uh, leverage over like uh, fixed fixed expenses like distribution centers like that kind of thing um, and that's kind of like the way the Amazon grew like you only need a certain amount of distribution centers in the US to begin saturating every geographic area and once you've hit the investment into those distribution center, you then have like a fixed cost. And then you just leverage that over higher and higher volumes of like national orders. Um, and that's what these guys are doing. They're, they're doing kind of like the Walmart and the Amazon strategy of building distribution centers, which are a fixed cost. And then you can kind of lever up on that one. So, you know, if you think that revenue can grow 20%, it's with the, 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 the leverage that you get in your earnings from um, those that fixed cost saturation, um, you can get much higher um, growth in earnings per share, which will drive your valuations even higher. Um, so basically, like you have a, uh, a a bond that's yielding four and a half percent with a growth in the yields um, may of maybe twenty, maybe thirty, maybe forty percent annually. Ah, that's not bad. You know, if I look at it the other way, I, I'm thinking about something like a 26% CAGR. And um, like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sort of crazy in the sense that like, I have very little diversification in my portfolio. Uh, and uh, so like, because my largest position is Tesla, uh, I kind of use it as a benchmark against which like, I will compare new investments. Because if I'm not, if I'm going to invest in something else, that means I'm not investing in Tesla. <laughs> So, so whatever I, I, I want to open up a new position, I kind of mentally compare it against that particular benchmark. And um, 
it's, you know, it could be, it's, it's actually comparable. And the nice thing is that it accidentally is in a completely different area. Like discount retailing to tweens is a completely different from like a high technology automobile, uh, artificial intelligence, energy entity, right? Like, like, I feel like that's very diversified if, if I were to have this enter the portfolio. And like the projected recurrence are attractive enough where I would feel like it, it wouldn't sufficiently be uh, deviated from like where, where I expect like Tesla could be. Um, so I actually think, um, yeah, I'd, I'd buy this even at like the, the $200 um, $11 billion market cap. Um, probably like hold it till 2025 and then reevaluate. That's my plan. Interesting. Yeah. I, I so I, I thought we would end up in a different spot. I, I love, I love the forward projection for this company. Uh, and again, same as you, I don't invest. This isn't the normally what I would look at, uh, which makes it interesting to try to do the exercise, but, um, there's lots of room to grow here uh, and it's not crazy. And I, what I like about this story is we're looking at this early enough. You know, they only have uh, they've just over a thousand stores. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, compared to 17,000, 10,000 stores, like we're early in a story here for a brand that, that has, you know, really good operational margins and is executing really well where, you know, you're not talking about buying this at, at 2,500 stores and wondering if they can get to 5,000 stores. Right. Yeah. You're getting this as part of the, you know, really early in their original vision. I think if you wanted to take a ride for a couple of years, you could see really, really strong returns, you know, 25 plus CAGR over the next two, three, four, five years. That's a wonderful investment. My only concern here is, is the broader, uh, broader economic demand is, is balancing the consumer strength, which has nothing to do with them, right? If we go into another lockdown, look at how bad COVID was for them especially yeah. if they pivot into experiential because you're not going to go into the store. And even yeah. if it's outdoor, like you're, it's almost we're headed into the winter. So like what happens to them if you're banking on a three, four year kind of early get in expansion and two of those years are going to be, you know, COVID related or COVID affected. Um, plus they're moving into an area that I, I think exposes them a little bit more um, to, to other pressures like, like inflation or, um, or competition, right? Uh, especially if, if you're getting into like e-gaming and other esports and other things. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know. And then I wonder, you know, they are investing in e-commerce and spending on e-commerce. And to me, that's a distraction because that's not, you know, I think you have to have it, unfortunately, if you're going to operate today, but that, that shouldn't be where they're spending their energy. They need to focus on the in-store experience and why I need to go and bring my kids, not why I should go online and buy my kids something that I don't need anyway. Right. right. So right. I, in a weird way, I'm a little bit put off by the um, uh, the lack. I don't want to call it lack of focus because this is a really well run business. I mean, operationally, the, the margins are incredible. Seven month return for an opening a new store just blows my balls off. But at the same time, they're investing and, and expanding in areas that I don't think are core and that I think, frankly, open them up to a lot more risk than they do upside. Focusing more on the on the experience and the in-store and the getting people to, to physically go, their ability to upsell into my demographic and not just my kids' demographic. They're opening up their products beyond just $5 and below. They can, they can price a little higher, which will help them if we enter an inflationary period. So uh, at, bottom line, if there's a way to be in in a, in a staggered way, like I put a little in, I track, put a little more, a little more in, 
only only the macro economy would steer me away from this stock. If we're entering a big recession, if you have some major inflationary pressure, I wish there was a way for me to know what the impact would be specifically on a store like this versus consumer trends to a Walmart or a Costco. Like I don't know. Um, but on the whole, every every metric, especially the per unit metrics for a store like this are incredible. I, I think it'd be very hard to argue that, that this is not a really well-run high growth business that you're catching at a very early stage. Yeah. And I mean, I think when the economy tanks, like typically like 99 cent stores and dollar generals get more business um, just because people don't have enough cash flow to spend at like, you know, bulk buying or like the bigger stores, they just literally want to spend like 99 cents for like a can of tuna or something like that. Now this place doesn't have that. This is like, is more discretionary. So I do feel it's not like staples. Yeah. Yeah. It's not staples. Like a, like that you'd see at a 99 cent store where you could buy like a can of corn. Um, like this is just stuff that you literally don't need. Like, yeah. So it's discretionary. And I, I mean, I think it could get hurt if the economy were to like really, really tank. If it was an issue with like COVID or something like that and schools were shut down, then obviously tweens would have more time to hang out together in stores like this uh, and then like spend money. And they do actually have um, their demographic. I think they the average household income is 80,000, which is roughly twice as much as the demographic for a dollar general. The average household income um, of visitors of those stores would be about 40,000. So they might still have um, uh, some pricing power. Their customers might still have some like uh, discretionary spending ability, even during the middle of a recession. Well, you know, that is, that is a bit of a concern. Um, all right. So you, you're, are, are you saying you're buying this one in dollar cost averaging in, or are you saying you're not buying this one and you're going to wait a little bit, or this is, is this like a definitely um, never invest? I, I, <laughs> I think you're, you're, I'm, I'm forced to buy because of the math, the back of the envelope math. Um, but it's one of those situations where it, it, there, there's, two, there's a lot of things that would get me out in a heartbeat, okay. which is very different than other companies. Like you look at Peloton, you look at Square, you look at like, to me, those are long-term businesses where short-term news, a bike recall or a competitive payment app doesn't scare me in the short term. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, if five starts to, stro- if, if the price, you know, if inflation rises rapidly, I'm worried about five. If consumer confidence, you know, wanes, I'm worried about five. Mm-hmm. If, if we're looking at another lockdown or a recession, I'm worried about five differently than anything else in my portfolio. So uh, I would say not so much dollar cost average. I would buy. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a solid buy. I, I just, I'm, I'm a little skittish. So I'd be keeping very okay. close tabs on some macro factors to see how that affects their business. So I, I might be in and then out tomorrow kind of thing. Okay. So it would be a buy, but with not super high conviction. Like you wouldn't be like, like if, if it took a hit, you'd be out. Correct. You'd be out, right? Like if there's negative news, you'd be out. I don't yeah. love the, the yeah. yeah, it's 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 almost like it, some businesses you buy because you love the business and you, you just think it's going to be 10 years from now, it's, it's going to be around and leading a market category. I have no idea if that's the case here. Yeah. I just think you're looking at a potential giant <laughs> yeah. very early in their growth, and it's a, and it's an exciting growth story in what's not an exciting dollar you know dollar spend space, uh, you know little discretionary retail space. Uh, but yeah, sometimes you got to play out of your category, and and all the math seems to say this is a really good opportunity for some high growth uh, and, and fairly risk mitigated uh, investment, but. Again, I don't know enough here to really predict what's going to happen in the long run. So I, I'm in, 
but keeping very close tabs on macro factors. And if they do other stuff out of core business, I would be a little bit concerned and also take a deeper look. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, um, I think for me, I- I'm going to take uh, a position in it, and then I'm going to try my best to do the coffee can thing, where or like the time capsule thing, where I just forget that I even own about it, and then just check back in 2025. <laughs> See how it's see how it's done, because sometimes like the quarterly, like the worries that pop up on a quarterly basis don't matter um, over the long run because they average themselves out, um, both good things and bad things. Um, and, you know, you only really see what happens in terms of the like the tidal shifts or whatever, um, you know, over longer time periods. And there's no substitute for longer time periods than like literally just forgetting about it. like playing bed. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're opposites yeah. here. I'm the opposite. I, I would not be comfortable doing that. This is one that I have to watch very, very closely okay. um, versus Tesla, by the way, I couldn't care less what happens in the next month or six months. And I'm, I have a long vision for Tesla, but here I don't, I really yeah. don't, man. You could tell me three years from now, they're five below is out of business and it doesn't exist anymore. And I would not be really surprised. I'd be, okay. Yeah. Like, like all it the happens. other dollars. Like there's retail's hard. The last decade. Exactly. Retail's hard. Yeah. And then yeah, um, really hard. Conversely, I'm the opposite. So, uh, I'm, I'm on it, but, but close tabs. Yeah. I'm, I'm the opposite on Tesla. I actually watch Tesla very closely because I, I, I do um, <laughs> options trading around the shares so that I can um, acquire. It's also more. 97% of your net worth. <laughs> Like Warren Buffett once said, you can have a single egg like in a basket, but you just have to watch it very, very closely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, this is this is a single egg for for me. This is a single egg because it's the only it's the only investment in this category that I that I've looked at, evaluated and and now would make uh, at a small level. So I am going to keep a close watch on this egg. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. And visit the store. Tell me what you think. So, yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, I'll come back. You know, ver- roundup version. I'll, I'll come back and, and tell you what I think of the store. I'll take some video. We'll, we'll TikTok it. <laughs> okay, I'm famous. Great, great. 